Please turn with me to John chapter 8. John 8, and I will read from verse 25 through 32. Let us hear God's word. And they said unto him, Who art thou? And Jesus saith unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true. And I speak to the world of those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Now this morning, uh, I returned to a series of messages that I began many years ago and never concluded a series on the mission of the church. And so this morning, we will be considering one of those functions or primary areas in which the church is to be engaged, what God has clearly directed us to be engaged at and to be involved with as a church. A number of years ago, I preached a series of sermons, a short series, on what is a Christian. And in that series, we answered the question, what is a Christian, by saying a Christian is a worshiper, a Christian is a disciple, the Christian is a member of the body of Christ, and the Christian is also a witness. Plenty of texts of Scripture that show these are predominant ways in which we can describe who a Christian is. I would say we could also say that a Christian is a sheep. That's right, a sheep with a shepherd, a chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who shepherds his people through under-shepherds. And so I would argue that as we consider these primary missions of the church, or we could call them marks of a healthy church, they correspond very well with what are the predominant themes of what is a Christian. A Christian's a worshiper. Well, the church is to be engaged in worship. A Christian is a disciple. The church is to be engaged in discipleship or sitting under the teaching of the Word of God, to head, to heart, to hands. The Christian is a member of a body, and so the church ought to be engaged in fellowship and is stirring up one another to love and to good deeds. <clears throat> and then clearly a Christian is a witness, called to be a witness, and so the church as a body corporately is also called to be a witness. <clears throat> Professor Murray describes these things as the functions of the church. Uh, in his collected writings, uh, he demonstrates when he talks about the mission of the church, he's very concerned uh, that in his day, and we see it even in our day, that quite often 
when we talk about what the church is to be engaged in, many in evangelicalism want to say missions is everything. Mission is the mission of the church. And witness is the primary thing that church is to be engaged in. Well, it's a very important item, area that the church is to be engaged in, but it is not the only thing. If you remember from Psalm 67, we learn that we witness because there are places where people don't worship. And in worship, we actually see in, even in the Great Commission, when Jesus meets the disciples there on the mount, they worship him. There, Matthew is very honest. Some doubt it. There was some doubt amongst them. They didn't have perfect faith, but they had a faith a saving faith, they were worshiping God, and in that context, Jesus gives them the Great Commission. And so this morning, as we look at discipleship, I want to see the biblical basis first, spend most of our time there, and then I might just refer to the biblical elements or some significant areas of discipleship that I believe we should be engaged in as a local congregation and as a presbytery. So first, the biblical basis in general. Uh, Clearly, discipleship is called out in what I would call the third prong of the marching orders of the church. The Great Commission, there are five Great Commission passages, one in each gospel and one in Acts chapter 1, but the one that we often call the Great Commission in Matthew 18 gives us three prongs of witness. We're to make disciples. (coughs) We look at the commission in Mark. We're told that we're to make disciples through the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we're to incorporate them into the body through baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They articulate into the school of Christ. But then, thirdly, the church is to be engaged in teaching those disciples to observe all things whatsoever Christ has commanded. So the church is to be engaged in full-orbed teaching. Those were the marching orders of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not surprising, after the Holy Spirit descends in Pentecost, which the church had been waiting for, and Peter preaches that Pentecostal sermon, we shouldn't be surprised that Luke, then in Acts 2.42, says... This new church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They continued in fellowship, in community with one another. They continued in the breaking of bread and prayers, sacraments and prayers. I think that's just summarizing all of corporate worship. They were a worshiping people. They were a fellowshipping people. They were a people that were sitting under the word. In worship, and I think likely in other context outside of corporate worship on the Lord's Day. In Proverbs 23, 23, we're told, buy the truth and sell it not. Also, wisdom and instruction and understanding. Truth gives us wisdom. Truth gives us instruction. Truth gives us understanding. John Huss said this, Seek the truth, listen to the truth, teach the truth, love the truth, abide by the truth, and defend the truth unto death. 
In Proverbs 29:18, we read, Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. <clears throat> That's kind of interesting in a lot of management uh, books. Uh, they love to quote the first part of this verse. Inaccurately. Where there is no vision, the people perish. As though we're supposed to learn about vision statements, corporate vision statements out of that proverb. But the Hebrew word that's translated vision there is referring to a revelation or an oracle. When the people don't have guidance, when they don't know where to go, they're not going to end up in a good place. And that's what is being spoken of here in the Proverbs. Where there's no vision, where there's no oracle, where there's no revelation of God concerning His will to His people, what's going to happen? They're going to perish. But he that keepeth the law, where there is revelation, where God has provided for us revelation concerning Himself and His deeds and how we are to live corporately and individually, then he says, he that keepeth the law, happy is he. That's that very word. This word happy is the very word that's translated blessed in Psalm 1. could be translated joyful. It's a holy delight. <clears throat> it's not pleasure-seeking for pleasure-seeking, but it's pleasure in the Lord, in walking in his ways. So there's just some examples of how we are called to submit to the Word of God. Let me give you some examples of good teachers, four of them in the Old Testament, and then I want to speak about Christ, the preeminent teacher. Here are five verses that I would encourage you to pray that God would work into pastors, teachers, that you will sit under, and pastor teachers in the PRC, and those that are preparing to be pastor teachers in the PRC. Pray that they might be like Moses in Deuteronomy 32.2. There Moses says, My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. Moses says, my teaching is not going to come like a hurricane flood. But I'm going to constantly be giving you due. You're constantly going to have the refreshment that you need. Not a torrent that rips you right out from your roots. But a constant stream of healthy doctrine. Pray that we'd be more like Samuel. In 1 Samuel 3.19 it says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and did not let none of his words fall to the ground. God was with Samuel in such a way that Samuel didn't speak many words that weren't edifying. There it says, like, there's none of them. There's none of them that just fell to the ground. There were none of them that were useless. They were all thought out. They were unto the edifying of God's people. It's something similar to 
what Paul calls us to, right? Teaching, speaking the truth in love to one another. <coughs> As the fruit of the ministry of the pastor-teacher uh, in a local congregation. Also pray that your teachers and future teachers would be like David. In Psalm 78, 70 and 72, the very end of Psalm 78, we read this. He, God, chose David also his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. You see, his character and his skillfulness. But they weren't, you can't separate the two. Right? Skillful teachers that have no integrity can lead people into very, very scary places. It's not enough to be a good communicator. We want ones in the church who are skillful, yes, but we want men with integrity of heart, right? Faithful and able, as Paul says. <coughs> also pray that we would be like Ezra. We're told in Ezra 7.10 that Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. I think we can understand that if Ezra had given himself to study the Word of God, to seek the law of God, he obviously prepared to seek God himself in his law, in his Word. He hungered and thirsted after the living God, so where did he go? He went to hear what God had to say to him. And then he sought to do it. And I think there's an order here. He sought to do it before he went and taught it. Pray that God would raise up teachers, not just in our presbytery, but throughout the church, throughout the world, like this. And then think of Christ preeminently. We could go to many places, but I want to go to Isaiah 50. Let's look at this passage briefly. Isaiah 50. Here's a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 50 verse 4. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning, he wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. Now the Lord Jesus Christ was fully God as well as fully man. And yet we learn in the Gospels that he went to be with the Lord. He went to meet with the Father routinely. God gave him the ear, even here we just saw in John 8, that Jesus says, I'm just giving you what the Father's told me. I'm not making this stuff up. We get a little picture of the inter-Trinitarian relationship, don't we, between the Father and the Son. The son hears, and he has the tongue of the learned. 
because he's had the ear of the learned. He knows how to speak a word in season. He knows the proper word. He knows the proper season to speak to the weary. Any of you weary here? I am. I'm routinely feel weary. Remember what the Lord says that the young, the youth, they will grow weary. It'll be too much pressure, but it's the Lord who has strength. He has power. He's the one that's created all the earth. He's promised that we will, He will cause us to mount up with wings like eagles, to run and not grow weary, to walk and not grow faint. Now that passage of Scripture might sound like an anticlimax. Flying, running, walking. <clears throat> I would contend it's a climax. I would contend sometimes the hardest thing to do in the Christian life is to keep walking, putting one foot ahead of the next. That's the hardest thing. But by God's grace, He promises there'll be times when we fly like eagles. There'll be times when we're running. There'll be plenty of times when we're just plodding. And because our God has chosen in His prophet to speak to us, the weary, words in season, when we most need it. In our personal worship, in our family worship, and especially in corporate worship, in corporate teaching of God's holy word. So we've looked at the biblical basis in general. We've looked at some descriptions of some good teachers uh, of the Old Testament uh, that were examples of Christ, that were kind of preludes of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Types of Him. <clears throat> Let's just look at eight distinctives of biblical teaching or the method of biblical teaching. Why is this important? Well, will all of you be teachers in the church? Pastors, teachers? No. But do you need to know what you should be looking for? Do you have a, a concern, a, a vote in who you elect and who fills this pulpit? Do you have a right to question if the session invites people to preach here that don't, aren't fulfilling some of these distinctives? You certainly do. You certainly have a right to speak up. Hey, what's going on here? Well, first, the teaching has to be authoritative. Matthew 7, 28 through 29, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, says, When Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for, here's the reason, he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In other words, he just didn't say, well, this commentator says this, and this commentator says that, and this commentator says that, and let's move on. Now, there will be some times when we may have to say we're not exactly sure whether it's this or this passage is saying this or that. But we just don't spout off names of people and their positions and not say what the Lord Jesus Christ has said. His servants are to declare His word. And when we do and don't get in the way, that word has authority. Because it's His word. 
It's the prophet's word. So first, authoritative. Secondly, it needs to be full-orbed or whole counsel. Paul could tell the Ephesian elders, I believe the elders of the Presbytery of Ephesus, when they came down to Miletus, he says, I've not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Jesus says in Matthew 4, 4, in defending himself against the devil's temptations, he says, man uh, does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. Paul says all Scripture is inspired by God. All of it's God-breathed. It's all profitable for instruction, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I believe what Paul's saying is he's saying it's good for positive teaching. It's good for negative teaching. Head, positive, negative, correction. It's good for correcting your life, your behavior. And it's also good for the positive aspect about how you should behave, how to order your life, instruction in righteousness. It speaks to the head, to the heart, to the hands, both positively and negatively. It tells us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And so preachers need to preach to the head, heart, and the hand. And it can't all be positive, but it certainly shouldn't be all negative either. Right? Preachers need to preach what's called the indicative, what is, as well as the imperative, what should be. And if we focus too much on the imperative, do, 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 and we forget to talk about what God has done, done, done for us, then we're imbalanced. Right? We move towards moralism. Right? But if we're always just speaking about what God's done for us, never talk about ethics, What's that lead to? An easy believism, right? A, a, a very clinical view, just God's doing everything and we don't have to do anything, which is inconsistent with God's Word. <clears throat> so authoritative, full-orbed, systematic, orderly. Jesus could say in John 16, 12, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. In other words, he says, there's certain things I want to teach you, but you're not yet ready. I've got to teach you foundational things before. There's an order to biblical teaching. Isn't that really what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 3, 2? I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hereto you were not able to bear it, neither are you now. He's saying, Corinthians, you should be getting on to meat. Some of you have a little brother who recently probably just started eating hard foods, right? I saw him eating a french fry last night, but for a long time he could only have milk. And now that he's growing, he can start having some whole food, right? But he's not having a steak yet. He's not old enough to have a steak. (coughs) Paul says that's the way we grow. We start with milk, and eventually we should be prepared for meat. Biblical teaching should also be methodical. In Isaiah 28, 9, and 13, there Isaiah talks about teaching here a little and there a little. Now, some of you children, if you had a bucket of water in your farm, 
right? And your dad asked you to fill a small Coke bottle with the bucket of water. Which was only 12 ounces in that little bottle. And you've got 64 ounces in that bucket. You've got plenty enough to fill that bottle. If you just pour the bucket right over the bottle, is that bottle going to be full of water? No, you dumped enough water to fill lots of bottles, and yet the bottle's not full. Why? Because you just dumped it. You didn't hear a little there, you didn't pour it carefully, maybe get a funnel to help it get in. And that's the way biblical teaching should be done. Hear a little, there a little. It needs to be engaging teaching, fifthly. Jesus says in Matthew 13, Every scribe which is instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasures things new and old. He's like the chief slave that's responsible for the house, that keeps the cupboard, keeps the storage shed, and he's got new things in there that haven't been shown, and he's got old things in there. And it says he brings old things out, and he brings new things out. In other words, when he brings up new concepts and topics, he talks about them in light of what we already know. He brings out the old, and then he brings out the new. He connects the dots. He just doesn't shotgun biblical teaching, so you don't know how things fit. You know all kinds of things, but you don't know how they fit. And you really don't know them very well if we don't know how Scripture connects and how scriptural doctrines connect. Engaging teaching also, I would contend, is like using a microscope. I'm sure some of you have had science, right? And you have a specimen in a microscope. Isn't it best to look at that specimen with five times the magnification first to see the whole specimen, then to go to 10, then to go to 25? Isn't that much better than just looking at one part of the specimen at 25 and not looking at the rest? And how often sometimes teaching can be imbalanced because... Ministers spend all or 50% of their sermons on eschatology, on the end times, (laughs) and spend very little time on all the other doctrines. So there needs to be balance. It needs to be engaging. It needs to be practical. In Titus 1.1, Paul speaks of the truth that accords or leads to godliness. Godliness is the child of Truth. Truth is the mother of godliness. Seventhly, it needs to be personal teaching. It cannot be just professional and clinical. Some of you may have experienced some of that in if you've taken classes in college or whatever. Some of it can be very clinical. It's very clear the professor has no interest in you. Their only interest is just giving you some knowledge and having you spit it back. That's the big concern. That cannot be so in the church. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says in two, <clears throat> chapter 2, 7 and 8, But we were gentle among you, 
even as a nurse cherisheth her children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear to us. You see, a Christian teacher doesn't just give knowledge. They give their heart with the knowledge. They're there because they care about God's sheep. They want God's sheep to not get lost. They want to be able to be the instrument of the chief shepherd, helping them see where they're at and where they need to go, how they can stay out of trouble. That's what they should be about. And lastly and eighthly, Biblical teaching needs to center in Christ. Paul gloried in the cross. All teaching leads back to the cross. Just like all roads lead to Rome, they used to say in ancient history, so all doctrines lead back to the work of the cross. Christ is central and should be in all the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And routinely, even when we're talking about other doctrines, not every time, but quite ordinarily, the minister ought to bring the message back to Christ, our relationship with him. Now, briefly, what are some of the biblical elements of this? How would this be worked out in a local congregation? Well, obviously, discipleship or submitting to the Word of God proclaimed is certainly a significant part of corporate worship. We've kind of already talked about worship, so let me talk about some other areas. One is Christian education for the young. In most of our churches, at some point, when when we get large enough, we have buildings or whatever, it's, it's a nice thing to have where the church leaders assist the, chil- the parents in the catechizing of their children in youth before they're old enough to really be able to sit in an adult Christian education class. <clears throat> Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.13, hold, hold fast the form or the outline, the type of sound words, of healthy words. Hold them in faith and love, which is in Jesus Christ. There he is centering on Christ again. How do we hold fast these words of God, these healthy words, through faith and love, which is in Christ? Also, a new members class. Or teaching that leads the youth as well as sometimes adults who have made a profession to actually be able to make a solid profession before many witnesses and to really understand the foundational doctrines of the faith. So it's for those that have been awakened, adults, as well as for children who are making a profession and who are coming to age so that they might make a profession before many witnesses. Also, clearly adult Christian education is appropriate. 
a time outside of corporate worship where um, ordinarily in many of our congregations most of the preaching is consecutive preaching through books of the Bible. And so there's clearly a place for Christian education time where we might work through survey of the Old Testament or New Testament, where we might work through church history, we might work through the doctrines of systematic theology or the subjects of practical theology, the law of God, marriage in the family, for instance, those kind of topics. Also, I think, the church ought to be concerned with Christian schooling. Not that the church gathered is responsible ultimately for the administration of a Christian school, but it's clearly the duty of fathers from Ephesians 6, 4 to nurture their children. And in that passage, it says nurture them, not just their spiritual well-being, their totality of their humanity. And so... If Christian fathers are responsible for their children, shouldn't the church seek to encourage Christian fathers in the education of their children? That could take many different forms, but should the church gather not be engaged in that, to help cultivate educational efforts by the members of the congregation? And then last, obviously, because of all those things, the church needs to be thinking about Christian literature, Christian media. What things are helpful to others that can be distributed, whether they're tracts or books uh, that are consistent with our understanding of Scripture so that people can be edified. <clears throat> so discipleship is clearly one of the marks of a healthy church. If we want to be healthy, we've got to think about how would God have us be engaged in serving Him by submitting to His Word? Because, remember Jesus' prayer in the high priestly prayer in John 17, 17? Jesus prayed for us. He's praying for us now at the right hand of the Father. And we can be assured that He's still praying the prayer He prayed while he was on earth in the upper room. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. If we're to grow individually, we're going to grow through the word. If we're going to grow corporately and stir one another up to love and good deeds and carry out the task that God's called us in the church so that the body might be built up by each of us doing our part then we will grow thereby. Let me just, in closing, remind you that when we speak of the Word of God, we're talking, look, listen to it, listen to these passages in Luke's progress reports in Acts. In Acts 6-7, after there's an issue with the distribution of diaconal food for widows, It says in verse 7, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied. Now, children, that doesn't mean that their Bibles just started growing. The word of God increased. But what it means is more and more people took a greater and greater interest in their Bible. Even when their Bibles were found on scrolls in their New Testament synagogues. 
They wanted more of that word. We see the same in Acts 12.24. Luke says, The word of God grew and multiplied. In Acts 16.5 he says, And so were the churches established in the faith. That's growing in the word. And increased in number daily. Church growth numerically. Church growth substantially. In depth. And then, interestingly enough, even in Corinth, after many had taken their evil books, books of witchcraft and the like, and burned them in repentance, Luke says in Acts 19.20, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. It grew and was victorious as God's people had a growing interest in it and spreading it, people were turning from wickedness. The Word was prevailing. May the Word prevail in our hearts. May it prevail in this community of Elkin and this county in days to come. And may we be salt and light in this community to see many brought from darkness to light. In closing, be reminded of our sympathetic high priest. He was tempted like unto us, and because of that he knows how to succor us. Paul could say in 1 Corinthians that he always gives us a way out of temptation. You may be tempted with fear or anxiety, anger, You might be inordinately angry or anxious about something, fearful. Jesus knows what that's like. He's been there. He gives us a way of escape. He provides us his word to orient us, to show us where we're at and where we need to go. Sometimes we're confused. Sometimes we're lost. Sometimes things are hazy. It's dark. We find light in his word. He teaches us because he loves us, because he has a relationship with us. But we have to cultivate that relationship. We have to submit to his word. And when we do, we'll worship him more. We'll also be better friends and counselors, encouragers to one another. Because then we can comfort others with the comfort we've received, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians 1. When we experience that comfort, we're better prepared to help one another. And we need to exhort one another daily, Paul says in Hebrews, because sin is deceitful, it lies... And when we listen to those lies, our hearts get harder and harder. And so we need one another from the pulpit and in our fellowship to stir one another up to remind us when we're listening to lies so that we might hear the truth and be sanctified by it through his spirit.